Well, today I want to talk about this resurrection power that has clearly made a difference in our pastor's life. All of us face death. Death is the single greatest menace in the history of humanity. And it's a problem that we all face. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ offers hope for us who live in the shadow of darkness. And so today we're going to talk about that. Today is, of course, Easter Sunday. And it's, it's a day where all around the world, people of every tribe and tongue and language, every nation, all different ethnicities, all different socioeconomic classes, all different types of people are celebrating the remarkable and the peculiar events that took place some 2,000 years ago outside a Middle Eastern city called Jerusalem. Easter is, of course, the time of year where Christians celebrate and proclaim the historical reality that a man named Jesus was executed, buried in a tomb, and then rose back to life, proving that he was, in fact, God. Now, if you're not normally a churchgoer, if you wouldn't describe yourself as being very religious, if you are a little bit uncomfortable here, I understand that, that this may sound absurd to you, right? Dead people don't come back to life. So I understand that this sounds strange. But for us as Christians, this is actually much more than that. It's, it's not just that some Jewish guy named Jesus did a, did a cool party trick and, and, and tricked everybody, but we believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything for us. That's why we don't celebrate it once a year, but all throughout our lives. And so today we are going to consider some of these major truth claims from the Bible. Now, you may have noticed the Bible is a big book. I'm a preacher, and so I'm supposed to have a big Bible, but I don't like big Bibles. They're heavy. I have a small Bible, but my small Bible is still a big Bible, right? The Bible is a big book with thousands of pages and millions of words. It's a, it's a big book. Very few of us have probably even read the whole thing, right? And there's actually only a couple of sections in the Bible that describe the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's only a small part of that Bible. But there is also a very real sense in which all of the Bible is about Jesus. From the beginning to the end, all of the Bible is anticipating or explaining or celebrating or describing the implications that come from Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the end, all of the Bible is about Jesus. And so I'd like to do something a little bit differently today. I know that today is Easter, but I would like to invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Jonah. Jonah. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, or if you don't have it on your phone, or, or, or if you don't have access to one, there's a black hardback Bible that is in one of the chairs in front of you. I would encourage you to, to pull that out and to follow along with me. It doesn't really matter what some guy behind a pulpit says if it's not from the book. So I would encourage you, find it for yourself and see if what I'm saying is true. You can find the book of Jonah on page 774 in the Pew Bible. And so what we're going to do this morning 
is we're going to look at the whole book, or most of the book of Jonah, and we're going to see how the book of Jonah anticipates and prepares us to understand the resurrection. How Jonah anticipates and prepares us to understand the resurrection. Now, while you're turning there, I want to invite you, or once you've turned there, to turn your attention back to the screen, and I want to draw your attention first to a passage from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is one of the four Gospels which describe the life and the events of Jesus, okay? So, so this is from, from that period. And I want you to see a few of the verses that, that make this connection to Jonah for us. Jesus actually makes this connection. And we'll, we'll come back to this a little bit later, but I want you to see this first. The setting in Matthew is one where most of the religious people of Jesus' day, some of the most religious guys on the scene, were questioning Jesus. They were very, very superstitious of him, and so they were trying to get him to, to show them another sign, right? A trick, a prove to us that you are who you say you are. There, I meet some folks, and they say, hey, look, I believe science, right? I need, to, I need you to prove it to me, right? You've got to prove it to me. And that's what these guys, part of what they were doing. But here's the thing. Jesus had already done signs for them. He had already proven to them the nature of his divinity. In this very chapter, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has already healed a man with a withered hand, proving that he has power over the body and power over sickness. And so listen to how Jesus responds. Follow along with me as I read verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Did you see that? Jesus was clearly referencing back to Jonah. He was comparing his life to the life and the events of Jonah's life. He's using the story of Jonah to describe the events that will take place in Jerusalem just a short time later. And what he does is he actually says the prophet Jonah and the events, the things that happened to Jonah are actually that sign. If you want a sign, well, you have Jonah. But how? I mean, what is it? What about Jonah's life would compel us to believe in Jesus? I mean, and especially, what does that have to do with Easter? Why would we talk about this on Easter? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. We don't have time to read the whole book of Jonah. I commend it to you. But I'm going to read several lengthy passages from the book of Jonah. And I've got them up on the screen, just the references, so you can follow along as I read. So let's look now at Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish and from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it, 
to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. At the end of chapter 1, it tells how Jonah realizes that he has sinned and that God has sent this storm because of his sin. And so they cast lots and they, they, he tells them, just throw me overboard, throw me into the sea, and then God will stop the storm. Well, the captain and the other mariners had no choice, so they threw Jonah over sea, over, overboard into the sea and left him to drown. And God calmed the storm. Now look down with me at chapter 1, verse 17. Then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Chapter 2 records that prayer for us where he's crying out for help. And then we read in chapter 2, verse 10. And then the Lord spoke to the fish and had vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that in his hands. And then verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's inspired and holy word. Will you please pray with me? Father, as I look out across all these faces, I'm immediately reminded I cannot convince anyone of the truth of your word. I cannot convince anyone of the preciousness of Christ. I cannot change any life. So, Father, come to us by your Spirit. As your word is proclaimed, let it go forth in power. 
No man needs to hear from me. I'm just a man. We need to hear from you. So, Father, I beg of you, let my words fall to the ground. Let them be blown away like leaves and forgotten. No man needs to hear from me. So let your word remain and let it bear root and take up root in our hearts and bear fruit to the glory of Christ, our King. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, I realize that I just read a story about a man who was swallowed by a giant fish and then was spit out again. Right? I realize that sounds absolutely ridiculous. I understand that for some of you, that's, that's how you feel about the story of Jonah. You might be thinking, how can anybody, any sane person, any reasonable, educated person believe a story like this? It sounds like a fairy tale or like a children's story. Or even worse, it sounds like a lie created to manipulate the naive or the stupid. If you have any of those thoughts, I, I understand that. I'm sympathetic to those thoughts. But let me, let me just say this to you. When you read the Bible as a 21st century, educated, American, Western mind, you have to understand that this entire book, right? You've got to come to a book on its own terms. And the entire book is about an infinitely powerful God who created the world just by speaking. And he rules over it with his word, with perfect power, and with absolute precision. So, let me ask you this. If there is a God, and if he did create the world, and if he is all-powerful, I mean, is it really a stretch to believe that he can command fish to do what he wants and preserve the life of a, of a wandering prophet in the belly of a fish? I don't think so. It's not a stretch to believe that he can command weather or that he can even bring the dead back to life. And so with that brief apology, let me invite you just to consider what if there is a God? What if he created the world? What if? I'd like to invite you this morning to notice four lessons from the book of Jonah. Four lessons from the book of Jonah. The first one is hard to hear. God will destroy sinners. This is unpopular. This is not pleasant to say. It is not pleasant to hear. It is not pleasant to believe. But the clear and the plain teaching of the Bible is that there is a God who is holy and who is righteous, and he will judge the world and punish sin. We see this in numerous ways in the story of Jonah. Perhaps the most obvious is God's response to the people of the great city of Nineveh. In chapter 1, verse 2, you can notice this in your Bibles, that God tells Jonah that their evil has come up before me. The city of Nineveh was a great and prosperous nation. It was successful in defending itself. It was good at technology, advanced in the arts and in culture and language. And they were also very proficient at sinning. They were very, very good at sinning. And their sinning was not done in secret. It was clearly seen by the eyes of the living God. In chapter 3, verse 4 Jonah tells the people of Nineveh what God's plans are for them. In 40 days you shall be destroyed, he says. 
In 40 days, you'll be overthrown. In 40 days, you will face the terrifying wrath of a holy God. A God who cannot stand by idly and ignore your sin. This brings us face to face with the constant reality of the penalty of sin. You like science? Well, science tells us you're going to die. Every one of us is going to die. It is a reminder to us of the penalty of sin. The Bible teaches us that sin is is anything that we do that does not please God. Sin is rejecting God or ignoring God in the world that he created. God created this world, he created us on it, and we ignore him and despise him. That is sin. Sin is rebelling against God by living without reference to him, by ignoring him, by preferring our phones over the living God, by preferring NFL football over the God who speaks wonders, preferring anything over him. Sin is not being or doing what God requires in his law. Sin can be a murderous thought or an act of adultery, or sin can be an unkind word. Sin can even be a failure to think correctly about God. We will be judged for how we think about God, by how interesting he is to us, by how we respond to him. Sin is bad because it destroys God's creation, and it grieves his heart. We see this all throughout the history of the world. By sin, mankind and humanity in the world is destroyed. Sin is destroying the world. But God is just. He's grieved by our sin, and since he is just, he, he cannot sit by idly and watch as his creation is destroyed and his honor is trampled. God is not some small, passive, scared bully in heaven fretting away that we're not obeying him. He is powerful, he's strong, and he is infinitely good in his judgments. In fact, it's our own sense of justice comes from him. We, we, God's sense of justice has been given to us in part. You know, the reason that you and I are outraged at the thought of a terrorist enslaving African girls is because we're made in the image of God. And we know that that, that is evil. We are, we are made with a sense of justice, and even though that may be warped by our sin, we know that that is wicked. Because we're made in God's image. We have his sense of justice to be outraged at evil. But unlike God, we are only outraged at some evil. Big bad evil, according to us. This is why we all want other people to get speeding tickets, but we don't want a speeding ticket ourselves, right? We want the law to come down on someone else, but not me, right? That's, That's how this works. We're outraged at the evil of others because we are sinners. We all do and all practice evil deeds. Now, we may not kidnap African schoolgirls, but we've broken God's law in other ways. The Bible teaches that all of us have sinned. That includes me. I am a sinner. That we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, fallen short of what he calls us to do. And the penalty for sin is eternal death. God is an eternal God who is infinitely holy and infinitely righteous and infinitely good. And so the only just response to sin is eternal death. 
We see this even for Jonah, God's selected messenger. He, even Jonah, was not exempt from the penalty of his sin. When God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, what did he do? He sinned, right? He, he disobeyed God's law, and he, he ran in the opposite direction. He disobeyed God and ran. I mean, how, how, how silly is Jonah, right? He's, this is ridiculous, right? For us, it looks ridiculous for us. How is it that he really thought that he could hide from God? Like God's in one city, but he's not in the other? You can get on a boat and run away from God? Like the God who created the world wouldn't be able to find him or that he wouldn't be able to keep track of him? But Jonah had to learn his lesson the hard way. Friends, you cannot hide from God. You think your sin is safe? You think that what you do in the dark is secret? You don't think God sees you? You don't think God knows your internet history? You don't think God knows the thoughts you entertain? Or what goes on behind the closed doors? You don't think God cares about your sin? We can't hide from God. A few weeks ago, my, uh, I have two daughters, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And they recently started a tradition from... When I would come home, they would hear my truck. I'm told that I have a loud truck. They'd hear my truck coming, and, and, uh, and they would hide before I came home. And the idea was that I'd come home, and, and I would try to find them. We would immediately go right into a game of hide-and-go-seek. So my oldest daughter, Karis, is fairly sophisticated in her selection of hiding places. But my two-year-old, Addie, is not. So I came in one day, and she was standing up against the wall doing this. All right? No furniture, no pictures. She just said, <laughs> she was standing really still. And so, you know, I did the dad thing. I was like, Addie, where are you? Where are you? She's like, Daddy, I'm, Daddy, I'm right here, right? So she was standing right against the wall. Yet we do the same childish thing. Just like my two-year-old, we think that we're hiding from God when our lives are in plain view. Our lives are under a spotlight. The God of heaven writes down your deeds in a book. He knows. You cannot, you cannot hide from him. He, he sees every deed. He knows every thought. He knows to the core every motive of your heart. And no one who runs from him from, is safe. Because the Bible teaches that God destroys sin. He destroys sin. God sent a storm to disrupt Jonah's plans. And then he sent a fish to take Jonah's life. You cannot hide from God. That's the bad news. There's lots of good news, church. So let me draw your attention to the second thing we learned from Jonah and let the good news begin. God pursues sinners. God pursues sinners. God is not only a God who hates sin. He is that, but he is not only that. God is a God of mercy. When he describes himself to his people in the Old Testament, he says that I'm a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God's mercy is all over the Bible, it's all over your life, and it's all over the book of Jonah. God had mercy on the people of Nineveh. 
he commanded Jonah to go to them and to tell them that they were in danger, to, to preach to them the gospel of repentance. He sent a man with a message to live among them and to tell them that they weren't safe, to tell them about the danger that was coming. This is an incredible act of God's mercy. God pursued the Ninevites even as they ran from him. God chased after them. He sent an ambulance. He sent a rescue boat that they might be saved. And God's mercy wasn't limited only to Nineveh. God sent a very strange lifeboat for Jonah, right? God's mercy is seen in the life of Jonah, even as, you know, when you're thrown into the water in the middle of the ocean, you can expect to die. Yet God in his mercy sent a fish to save Jonah, a great fish who rescued Jonah and saved his life. And then God mercifully and miraculously, I have no explanation for this, except for that it's miraculous, that God sustained Jonah's life in the belly of the great sea monster. And then again, we see God's mercy in chapter 3, verse 1. Look down at that in your Bibles. God gave Jonah a second chance to obey. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. Do you see how God's mercy is all over this story? My dear friend, if you are here today, and if you're hearing my voice, and if you're hearing this message, then God is showing mercy to you. God does not owe you anything. He's not in your debt. Everything that you have is a gift. Every breath is an act of mercy. God owes you and God owes me nothing. Yet in his mercy, you are here hearing the gospel preached to you. Do you see God's mercy over this story and do you see God's mercy in your life? Perhaps you're here and you're like Jonah. One of God's people, but you're running from him. And you're ignoring him. You're ignoring God's words for your life. Like God doesn't care, right? Like you'll, you'll sort it out later. You're ignoring his plan for your life. You're disobeying him. You're, you're pretending like my two-year-old, like you can't be seen. Because you're flat against a wall. Or that God doesn't care. What will it take for God to get your attention? Does he need to wreck your life? What will it take? Are you waiting for a near-death experience? Are you waiting to be swallowed by a fish to get your, for God to get your attention? It's a foolish, dangerous game. Maybe you're like Jonah. Or perhaps you're like the Ninevites. You, you, you want nothing to do with God. You're here for whatever reason this morning, and we're glad that you're here. But you're like the Ninevites, and, and you're living like he doesn't exist. You sin, and you sin boldly, and you sin happily. You know, sin's pretty fun. For a time. It could be fun. And the Ninevites were living like sinners, right? They were living according to their flesh, as if the only pleasure they would ever know was in this life. And here's the thing, friends. If you do not know God, the only pleasure you will know is in this life. And it's going to end soon. I want pleasure that lasts forever. That's why I cherish Christ. So maybe you're like Nineveh, and, and you're living like God doesn't exist. 
Well, again, it's God's mercy that he has sending you his word this morning. But this brings us to a third point, and this is glorious news. God can destroy sin and yet spare the sinner. God can deal with sin justly and not kill me. God can spare the sinner while destroying sin. This is where things get really interesting. Yes, God has a holy hatred of sin. And yes, the punishment for sinners is death. But it does not end there. Because God is stronger than sin. And he's able to destroy sin while saving the sinner. When Jonah was swallowed up by the great fish, it was clearly a sign of God's judgment. God did not send a hot air balloon. That would have been much more pleasant, right? God sent a sea monster. I can't even imagine what this would have been like. And, and let's just be clear. This is, a, this is God's mercy, but it's also a sign of judgment on Jonah, right? For all intents and purposes, Jonah is dead. If you get thrown into the ocean with no boat and you're swallowed by a great fish, you can expect to die. I don't care how many vitamins you take, right? I don't care what app you have. You can expect to die. Jonah was, by all intents and purposes, dead, right? That's not the sort of thing that you spring back from unless you've got God, right? God is able to bring the dead back to life. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon that dry land. We have a God who speaks to fish, and, and they'll obey. My dog won't obey me, right? I talk to him, he doesn't listen to me, right? I have to bribe him, manipulate him. God speaks to animals, they obey. God speaks to a fish, it vomits, it vomits its lunch, right? You see, here's the good news. Life after death is possible. Life, this shows us life after death is possible. Sin leads to death, no exceptions. If you have sinned, you will die. Maybe tomorrow, maybe 50 years, I don't know. Maybe in a car wreck, maybe of old age, I don't know. But you will die. But the God who has created the world, the God who commands weather and commands sea monsters, he's stronger than death, isn't he, church? He can tell death what to do. Do you know how I know? His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Like Jonah, God sent Jesus to a wicked people. Jonah was sent to Nineveh, and Jesus Christ was sent to earth to preach a message of repentance. Jesus came as a missionary to, to warn people of the holy wrath of God. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, he said, he said, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus was preaching the same message that Jonah was. But unlike Jonah, Jesus always obeyed God. Jesus never disobeyed. He never rebelled from God. He never hid from God. He never said a word that displeased God or a thought that displeased God. Yet even though Jesus Christ never sinned, he died the death of a sinner. He was punished as a sinner. When Jonah went to Nineveh, he preached repentance, and Nineveh repented. Yet when Jesus came to earth and preached repentance, we killed him. Jesus was a historical person. He was falsely accused, beaten, 
spit upon, and then he willingly carried a cross. A piece of wood that he created, up a hill that he created, in front of a crowd that he created, under a sun that he created. And he was crucified between two sinners. Thieves and murderers. Two men, I mean, it might as well have been me. Two men who, like me, actually deserved to die because they had actually broken God's law. And then, like Jonah, Jesus was buried for three days. Jonah in the belly of the great sea monster and Jesus in the rich man's tomb. And Jesus literally died. When Jesus was on the cross, he wasn't dying a normal death. He didn't die the same type of death that the thieves died. He died a different kind of death because Jesus was paying the penalty for sin. He was bearing the full wrath of God for all the sin that you and I have ever committed. Every evil thought, every evil deed crowned his blood-stained brow. Jesus died the death that sinners deserve so that you and I would not have to. That, my friends, is the story of the gospel. And then once Jesus died, he was placed in a tomb, and then everything went dark. It looked like the end. But that wasn't the end. Because the God who created life is stronger than death. And so on Easter morning, like Jonah, Jesus came out of the tomb proving that life after death is actually possible. So even though you are dead in your sin, you can live again. And through the work on the cross, through, through the work that Christ has done, Jesus has made a way for God to destroy sin and spare the sinner. <coughs> This is the gospel. This is the gospel of God that Jesus took our place. He took our sin upon him. And so God destroyed him. But Jesus came back from the dead, and in doing so, he proved that sinners can live again. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that it was for our sake that Jesus became sin. Even though, even though he didn't know any sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what took place on the cross. And this brings us to one final point this morning. You can find God. Even though you've run, God can be found by sinners. <clears throat> even though God is committed to destroying every sin, and even though our sin has separated us from God, we can be reunited to God through the person of Jesus Christ. Another similarity between Jesus and Jonah is that they preached the same message. When Jonah went to Nineveh, he preached the message that God had given him, to turn away from your sin and to turn to God. It's clear that the king of Nineveh, he got this message. We read this in chapter 3, verse 8. <clears throat> he says, Let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that in his hands. And who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Mr. Nineveh got it. 
King Nineveh, he, 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 he understood. If you want to be saved from the wrath of God, you have to do two things. We see them in this text. The first you have to do is you have to call to God for help. The king of Nineveh described it as a mighty call. It's a desperate call. It means that you have to call out to him in desperation that he would save you. It means you must realize that if God doesn't save you, then you're going to drown. You don't have any chance, any hope for rescue, no chance to be saved. I don't care how much you've come to church. If it's just on Easter or if it's every Sunday of your life, it's not enough. It's not enough. So stop trying to be good enough. The Bible teaches that if you want to come to God, you must come to God by faith in a person, which means that you must place your hope and your reliance and your dependence upon Jesus to be saved. It means you rely on his perfect life of obedience, where Jesus obeyed where I couldn't obey. Jesus has obeyed where you have disobeyed. And then you trust in his death to pay the penalty for your sin. And you trust in his resurrection as a guarantee that you can be brought back from the dead. The Bible says that God will actually accept faith as righteousness. In Romans chapter 4, we read, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith will be counted as righteousness. To be saved, you must admit that you're a sinner and that you need someone to rescue you from your destruction. But there's a second part to salvation. There's a second thing you must do. You must turn from your evil way. There's a great misunderstanding in our culture today that if you want to be saved, all you have to do is believe that this guy Jesus existed. You just got to believe, they say, that he was a person, that he died on the cross for our sins, and you're good. That's not the gospel. That's not enough. Jonah and Jesus both preached a gospel of repentance. What that means is, is that if you want to find God, you must turn to him. Which means that you're facing your sin, and so you must turn from your sin and start facing God. The Bible calls that repentance. It's not enough to just say that you believe that Jesus was a cool person. You have to turn from your sin to turn in the opposite direction. You see, here's how this works. You can't love God and love what he hates. You can't love God and love your sin. That's not possible. You can't come to God and keep on sinning freely. It's not possible. If you do that, John says that you're not a Christian. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. Trust me. Those of you who know me, you can attest, right? I'm not talking about perfection. Jonah was God's messenger, and yet he still sinned. The Bible is full of stories about really messed up people who did all sorts of wicked, terrible things, but they put their faith in God while turning from their sin. So what happens when a sinner cries out to God in faith? What happens when a sinner turns from his sin? Well, the king of Nineveh hoped that God would turn and relent from his fierce anger so that they would not perish. Because all he had was Jonah. Well, we have something far better than Jonah. Jesus is the better and the greater Jonah. You see, when Jesus came, he proved that this is possible. 
And his resurrection from the dead proves that sinners can live again. And that those who hide in Jesus can be made right with God. And so as we come to a close this morning, I I want to ask you, dear sinner, where are you this morning? Are you running from God? Are you pretending that he can't see? The call for repentance demands a response. You will either leave here today more attracted to God or more despising of him. Your heart will either soften or harden. How is it that you will respond to God? Are you living oblivious to God and his law, ignoring him? Well, it's clear that you can't escape. God is a righteous God who destroys sin. And either your sin will be destroyed in hell with you for all of eternity because of your sin, or your sin can be destroyed on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, there is resurrection hope that changes everything. Because when Jesus came back from the dead, he proved that he can not only pay the penalty for our sin, but that he can also live again. So I plead with you, place your faith in him. Will you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that Jesus is a better word than the word that was given to Jonah. And Father, we pray I pray, Father, for those who are here today and who are unsure about how they see you, Father, that you would give them clarity, that you would open the eyes of those who are living in darkness. For those who are loving their sin and thinking, thinking that because they know your name and know about your life that they're safe, I pray, Father, that you would do your work of salvation today. And we'll give you praise for it. I ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.